You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. Glad you're here this morning and on the fourth weekend of January, which is also the fourth weekend of our series, our message series called Hopeful. Uh, as we were kind of planning for all this, this last year, the staff, we certainly wanted hope to be kind of that big word that would carry us throughout 2018. And why not just start out right out the gate with just calling it hopeful and kind of crashing some things around that. Uh, also, when we were planning, uh, we were kind of looking at, hey, where does this word hope show up in all of Scripture? And we found, uh, delightedly so, that the highest concentration of the word hope or hopeful was found in this letter uh, that we know as First Thessalonians. And kind of what excited us even more was uh, this is one of those letters that we honestly don't spend a whole lot of time in for whatever reason. Many things get out of it, but maybe some other books with more clout or fame kind of take over the spotlight. But with January, we decided, hey, we're glad to start with First Thessalonians. So this was uh, a book or a letter written by Paul. If you like the history side of things, then uh, you might like to know that this uh, first letter to the Thessalonians, there are two of them. The first one was one of the first books, maybe the first, but most people think Galatians was the first one written chronologically. But this is toward uh, kind of the beginning of Paul's ministry, and it's kind of fun kind of contrasting the younger Paul with the older Paul looking at these two letters. So he's writing to this uh, coastal city, uh, we know it as, uh, at least then, is Thessalonica. And the church there is made up of largely very, very young Christians, Jesus followers who are extremely new to the faith. Uh, Now, there are some Jewish people that were part of that church, but largely, since it was so far away from Jerusalem, uh, mostly it was made up of people who did not grow up or, you know, going to temple. They did not grow up with rabbis around. They did not grow up with the Old Testament. They just didn't have that growing up. So even though in this moment where we find them, they are very dedicated to Jesus, they love him, they want to serve him and follow him more closely, there's just still a lot that they don't know yet. So it's all brand new territory for most of the people, the young Jesus followers at this church in Thessalonica. So these people are very much going through a sea change of sorts uh, when Paul is writing to them. Uh, This morning we're going to be in the fourth chapter, entirely the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, just kind of how this is uh, presented and written, we're going to kind of carve this up. Um, This is not to alarm you, but in some ways there are going to be two different sermons this morning. There are like two, at at least two different ideas that come through in the fourth chapter. So here's how this is going to go. First, uh, we're going to talk about holiness. That's going to come through in the first eight verses. Then we're going to skip a few. There's still good meat there if you want to explore it later. But kind of part two is verses 13 through 18, and that's going to be about the second coming of Jesus. But what these two sections have in common is hope. So just think of that word hope and hopeful. We're going to be there in both part one and part two of my time this morning. So the first eight verses, it'll be up on the screen and I'll read them here. Paul writes, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. 
Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Here is what uh, Paul is speaking to. Thessalonica, being a part of the Roman Empire and still being very much influenced by uh, the Greek thought of the day, uh, this was a place where all things sex and sexuality was a very open, out-in-the-air, in-your-face reality. And in some ways, even more so than we might think our own uh, culture is today. Just so many of these gods were pagan in nature, and uh, just what these gods represented and even called from their worshipers were what we would call um, uh, depraved, even illicit sexual practices. And just the idea of having sex with as many partners as you would like, it was just a normalcy. It wasn't even looked down on most of the time. And even though monogamy would have been uh, something that was known, the idea of this being like clung to would have been uh, largely foreign. I'm sure there were who appreciated, but it didn't have that kind of sanctity or that sacredness that, you know, in this country, at least based on Judeo-Christian values, they just didn't have that. They didn't grow up with that. So uh, what we would call sexually, sexually immoral today, uh, they would just call normal and life there in the first century Thessalonica. Uh, so I was kind of reading, anytime you open the Bible, especially like an epistle, um, I always think of the epistles, these letters, as very kind of meat and potatoes, spirituality, just like lots of good stuff to chew on and that you can uh, feed yourself spiritually with. But there are a lot of do's and do nots. And whenever we read about do's and do nots, it's almost like uh, we kind of by default read uh, the Bible like with an angry tone. And it's something that I don't think exists a lot of the time, but even something that I need to guard against uh, myself. Uh, But this is Paul's words. This is Paul writing to this group of very young Jesus followers, by and large. But I don't get the sense that he is angry with them. I don't get the sense that uh, he has a pointed finger in their face shaming them. What I do get from Paul, because he cares about them so much and he kind of helped establish these people, what I do get is that he is urgently but gently correcting them and pointing them to a different direction. You know, again, the idea of, you know, what they're doing being sexually immoral, they're like, oh, we had no idea. This is news to us. Tell us more. And how he goes about that is he does some contrasting. He contrasts holiness and sexual immorality in such a way as to communicate that these two things cannot coexist together. It cannot be done. Here's verse 3. He contrasts God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from sexual sin. And then verse 7, God has called us to live holy lives not impure lives. Now, we can get bogged down in Christianese uh, language sometimes. There are just some words and phrases that we hear that uh, seem to come out largely in Christian circles or within the walls like this one. And I think holiness is one of those words, and I think the phrase sexual immorality is one of those phrases. Uh, So let's kind of break these down. Those are just things that we hear a lot, so let's kind of look at these fresh or from a new angle. When Paul is referring to What Paul's referring to when he uh, talks about sexual sin, it comes from this Greek word pronounced porneia, and we derive our word pornography from that Greek word that's found quite a bit uh, throughout the New Testament. And here's what it means. It means that it's a sexuality that is used or experienced in a harmful or damaging way. 
To get even more specific, sexual immorality, it's this sexuality that's used or experienced in an emotional, emotionally or spiritually damaging or hurtful way. Now we contrast that with holiness or the word holy. Now I grew up understanding the word holy to mean uh, just this phrase set apart. And I was content with that, and, you know, for a long, long time. It makes sense to me. Uh, it can also mean sacred, but uh, for our purposes this morning, uh, I want to kind of use a phrase that is just as biblically faithful as set apart or sacred, and that is when we hear the word holy or holiness, it's this idea of that uh, we belong to God. Holiness is belonging to God. Now, in other places in the Bible, specifically, you know, back in Exodus, when God is calling his people out of Egypt, he says, I want you to be my holy people. And around that time, he says, here's what this means. By being my holy people, by belonging to me, you are my treasured possession. It's a beautiful Hebrew word that I can't pronounce that, uh, that, that comes through with. It says, you are my treasured possession. My people belong to me. I treasure you to a great deal. Uh, there's this uh, really good get-to-know-you question I ask if I'm meeting new students or other people in ministry contexts, and it's, uh, it's one of those desert island questions. There are variations on this, uh, but it kind of goes like, hey, if you were stuck on a desert island, like, what's that one object that you would take that you would want to have with you? And it's just a roundabout thing of asking them, hey, you know, what are you all about? What do you treasure? What's your most valued thing? It just kind of lets you in. Just a, it, It's a good way to get to know somebody else. And uh, it is entirely cliche, but I will live with it. Uh, my most treasured possession is one of my Bibles. Now, if you look at my shelves at home, or if you look at my shelves here in the office, you'll find a number of Bibles, and some of these, they've been given to me as gifts, and some I've bought on my own, just depending uh, where I was in my journey or what I want to use these different Bibles for. Uh, but there is one, it is, and it, this, probably two people in the room will care, but it's, a, uh, it's an NASB Wide Margin Keyword Study Bible. So that, it, again, that is exciting to me and no one else, but it has most of my, like all my most uh, interesting or like detailed notes are in those margins. And I've had it for just over seven years now and it's falling apart. You know, some uh, edges are frayed and all that. In fact, I don't even like taking it out of the house. I keep it at home. And if I do take it out of the house, then I always bring it in a box. Uh, normally I would show this to you from the stage, but I'm in the you know, midst of a move this weekend, so it's at the bottom of some box, and it'll come out sometime this week, I'm sure. But even with all that, even that has, I've spent my most study time and time with Jesus with this particular Bible, and that's not the reason it's my most treasured possession. The reason it is my most treasured possession is because this was a posthumous gift given to me by my grandfather when I was ordained into ministry um, about seven years ago. Just kind of a backstory, I was ordained in a November of a calendar year, and my grandfather, who was always very interested in my spiritual life and was very proud of me going into ministry, uh, he had, uh, you know, his, uh, his life had come to an end about four months prior, and just my church, the ordination process is very lengthy, and it just didn't work out that my grandpa was able to be there on ordination day, which was, you know, it was sad in its own way. Uh, but after my ordination, uh, my mother gifted me with this Bible, and you know, I was excited about it anyway, but uh, she wrote on that inside cover on my grandfather's behalf, you know, presented to me on this day for this occasion, but there's this you know, phrase, and it's a biblical phrase, uh, it just says, you know, for my grandson, in whom I'm well pleased, you know, Grandpa Hollis. 
And uh, for those who know, like that is a uh, take on a phrase that we see from the early gospels when Jesus is baptized, the clouds part, and God says, hey, everyone look, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it means much to me, not just that you know, it, it, it came from grandpa, but had he been there, that is exactly what he would have said to me, and it would have been just so deeply meaningful and emotional for the both of us. That is my most treasured possession, just for any number of reasons. And the idea of it getting lost, scratched, harmed, a page being ripped out, even if it's a table of contents, I would just be so heartbroken. It'd be hard to get over if anything bad happened to it. And I take such great, great care of it. That treasured possession is exactly the kind of feel, even more so actually, that God feels towards us, his people, that he has to belong to him. Now, this all makes sense. Paul's tone, if we understand God to be extremely loving instead of almost a default as this angry judge. What we see here is God getting down on our level through Paul saying, guys, listen up. I love you so very, very much. And the idea of anyone hurting you or you hurting yourself is so very painful to me. And he keeps saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to take me at my word that what I have for you and what I want for you is so much better and wonderful than what you think you might want for yourself. This is how God talks to us, the people that belong to him, his treasured possession. And that's also how we talk to the people we love, much like Paul writes to his uh, young disciples there in Thessalonica. And in the case of the people at Thessalonica, uh, it was a sexual sin that Paul was urging and pleading them to stay away from. Uh, but it could be any number of things for us today. That's just you know, kind of a Bible reading tip. Anytime you read something, uh, it was being written, especially these epistles, it was written to a particular people, time and place for a specific cause. Their issue was just sexual sin because there was com- some, some uh, confusion there. But for us, it can be any number of things. Uh, God's heart is always, always, always to give us what is best for us. And getting us the best means keeping us away from things that will hurt and destroy us, even if that's over the long term, which is exactly what sin does. Sin lies and says, this will give us what we want, but in the end, it only hurts us. We know this about sin, even though we keep going back to it and back to it. Here's what holiness does, this belonging. This is what it does for us. Holiness gives us what we need, and if we get enough of it, there comes a point where holiness is all we want. Uh, on Friday, I was, there was, there's a beautiful quote by this author named Dallas Willard. He's a very deep thinker, deep theologian. And I couldn't find the exact phrase, but he says something like, there comes a point when we're walking so closely with Jesus that you know, we're so close with him, we have that sense of belonging so deeply that there comes a point where sin doesn't even look interesting to us. Now that is something I want to feel that great of a sense of belonging to God that sin doesn't even look interesting to me. I was reading an interview early this week with the actor and comedian Russell Brand. Uh, He's been kind of off the radar for a couple years. Uh, But uh, high school, you're going to hear more about this guy in this interview tonight at 6 o'clock here at the building. Uh, But this is a guy who has been addicted to everything. Throw something out that will damage you, your relationships, your body. He has been addicted to it. But also, he has worked through those addictions, and he come out on the other side. And in this interview, he was talking about uh, just America's culture, and just our culture is kind of designed that it's uh, our culture is kind of built around almost entirely destructive patterns. 
And he says that there's only really one way to get over our culture's destructive patterns. And he says that is by following Jesus. Here's a, here's a snippet from the interview. He says, there's a famous quote. Every man who knocks on a brothel door, he's looking for God. Crack houses and these dens of suffering and illicit activity, they're all people trying to feel good, trying to feel connected. People are trying to escape. People are trying to get out of their own heads. To me, this is a spiritual impetus. Now that word impetus, it means it's a stimulus or it's a moving force. Think of it as a spiritual momentum. You know, that feeling we have, all of us, I believe, we have of wanting to uh, experience more, wanting to have something more, wanting to feel connected. That is our spiritual life moving. And I think God places that in us on purpose, and I do think that we all have that. And at the end of the day, it's belonging to God that we're after. To use that Christian need word, I think it's holiness that we're all after. Paul ends this section by saying this, Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives us uh, his Holy Spirit. Here's a Bible study tip. Anytime you see that word, therefore, it means the writer is making a point. He's saying that if you've read or if you've listened to nothing else, then please listen to this part. And Paul tells them that anyone who refuses to live in holiness, who refuses to lean into this sense of belonging, is, at the end of the day, rejecting God. And rejecting God is essentially saying to God, I know I'm your treasured possession, and I know I belong to you, but I'm going to risk it anyway and go my own way. That's the act of rejecting holiness. That's the act of rejecting that belonging. Here's what I want to say about these first eight verses and something that we can take home with us. Living a life of holiness does bring hope into our lives. Living a life of holiness brings hope into our lives. It's this hope that we're not going to be marred by sin. Yeah, we'll deal with it. Yeah, we'll give in every now and again. But we are, like, we're not held accountable, excuse me, we're not held guilty for those if we uh, lean into this holiness. If we trust Jesus' holiness is blanketing our own unholiness. That this holiness that we pursue brings uh, this little bit of heaven to earth, and that is something we get to bless others with. And eventually, we might get to enjoy that hope of living in such a state of holiness that sin will not even begin to look interesting. Sermon number two. The other big area that Paul wanted to address was death and the afterlife. And living in Thessalonica, there were so many different ideas about what happened to you after you died, after you passed away. And based on Paul's language, it stands to reason that there's a chance that some of the Christians there had been persecuted and even martyred for their faith in Jesus. And naturally, if our brothers and sisters are dying in Jesus' name, then we're going to want some comfort to know, hey, are we going to see these people again? What are the answers? What's happened to them? Can you give us some, some ease, some, like, some relief when it comes to this afterlife stuff, Paul? Can you do that for us? And that's what Paul tries to do. Now, in this Mediterranean culture, there were different schools of thought as far as, hey, what happened to people after they passed? There was a thought that some just in their soul state, just kept on doing exactly what they did when they were alive, just they kept their nine-to-five schedule, but there was just now no any purpose or meaning to it. And I was reading some, uh, they, like, some people, they put such a focus on uh, the burial process and making sure that it was done just, just right. They dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's because if they messed up the burial in any way, then they thought that like, the soul would get loosed and would just kind of meander through, I don't know, the ether out there and just be lost forever. 
Now, most people, again, they were living with that Greek mindset, so if we know our Greek mythology, this will sound familiar. Uh, Still, most people thought, you know, everyone, they pass away, they go down into Hades, they got across the river Styx, and they were judged based on their actions. And if you were a bad person, then you go to a place called Tartarus, and if you were a good, really good person, then you got to enjoy the Elysian field. Just imagine a paradise. And even some of that, you know, being judged based on good and bad, some of that even, you know, stays with us uh, here in 2018. But because of all the confusion and all the different ideas, they didn't quite know who to listen to, Paul sees fit to set things straight and to inject hope into the heart of these people. Verse 13, he writes, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and were raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever." So encourage each other with these words. Paul tells them this largely to say that, hey, guys, death is not the end of the story. Even now for us today, this is something to encourage each other with, especially when a believer passes or even when tragedy befalls uh, believers that are still living. That the end game is being with Jesus forever. Now, I'm always hesitant to get in conversations about the second coming of Jesus, even when I get to teach about it from the stage or with students. I don't always get excited about it, and that's just because it's so easy for us to get bogged down in the details that, at the end of the day, don't matter a whole lot. You know, things like, hey, when will it be? Where will it happen? You know, what time zone is Jesus going to show up when he does show up? I'm like, I don't, I I, I mean, I I get that these are normal questions, but I, I don't know. And I think it's okay that I don't know. Because I don't think that's really what it's about. Now you can read about some more details even in the next chapter of 1 Thessalonians. There's some revelation that you can look into. But for Paul writing to this church here, he gives enough details to communicate two things. And these are the important things that Paul thinks these people need to hear. The first is, there is going to be a physical resurrection of the Jesus followers who have passed away from all of history. That's important to know, that we get a physical resurrection, just like Jesus did. And two, the most important, is we are going to be with Jesus. The entire point is verse 17. Together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. He says we're not getting caught up in the details now. Just encourage each other with the fact that we'll be together forever and we'll be with Jesus forever. That's all he's interested in. Now, maybe you're something like me, and uh, whenever you hear this text, or especially that phrase that, uh, that we don't have to grieve like those without hope, that you think of loved ones who have passed, and you think of funerals. Every single time I think of that, because I think every single funeral has included that text or has included that particular phrase. And that's just to communicate that, yes, we do have hope because we have assurance that we will see that Jesus follower once more. I want to end my time uh, just sharing two stories. Uh, They're both funeral stories, but 
Uh, I wanted to share these because even though they're death and funeral stories, uh, they both have hope at the end of them. Uh, the first one is this. Uh, a few years ago, it'll be, um, it'll be three years um, in February, uh, I get a phone call on a Saturday and just saying, hey, um, Cody has passed away. Cody was a friend of mine, 22 years old, when he passed away. And they called me then not just to say he's passed away, but also um, it's still very fresh. Uh, you know, family's at the house. You know, no one's left yet. And they were just like you know, a pastor there. So I, I, I was in Lebanon, and I rushed down to Centerville to his apartment there. And, you know, uh, families there grieving inside. Uh, officers were there just because it was so unexpected and there were some questions. We were relieved to find out afterward there was no illicit or criminal activity that led to this. It was just one of those freak medical accidents. He had a, we were told he had like a heart thing that had been undiagnosed his entire life. But I get there and, you know, family is there and everyone's in that state of shock. Uh, he was a small group leader at a local church uh, here in this area. Uh, had a group of uh, younger high school guys. A few of them were there. So there was a lot to um, kind of, you know, weed through. And it's just one of those states, and it was so fresh. Uh, you know, everyone's kind of standing around that, those you know, expressionless looks on our faces. Just no one knows quite how to get through this stuff. And we all process things like this way, way differently. Uh, so, you know, we stand around, and we hug, and we cry. And that's just about all, all you can do. So uh, it was the next day or two, and it's you know time for the visitation at, at the church, and we're kind of standing around. People get to you know be with each other and comfort and minister to each other, and I was standing with my friend Ryan, and I said, Ryan, I have got to confess this to somebody because I feel so guilty. I have not shed a single tear over Cody yet, and he says, I think that's okay. I haven't I haven't cried at all either, which Ryan was even closer to Cody than I was. I was like, well, you know. And you help me, help me, you know, figure this out. Why I'm not? And uh, Ryan says, "Well, Cody's in heaven. Cody's with Jesus. You know, what is there to be sad about? I mean, yeah, it's bad that we won't get to see him for a while, but uh, eventually we will, and we get eternity, uh, you know, together, and that'll be great." And that made me feel better. And then it came time for the funeral, and the funniest thing happened. You might think this very strange or even morbid, but this is what happened. Uh, There was a time for a whole two, three seconds where I had the legitimate thought that, I mean, I was just, I was jealous of Cody. Because he was there. He made it. He was with Jesus already, and he didn't have to mess with everything that earth throws at us. And looking back on that, in that moment and even now, that is a hope I'm going to cling to forever. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Story number two. Uh, My grandmother, she passed away September 2002. I was 14 years old. And the last several years of her life, she had battled Alzheimer's. And there came a time where she had fallen, broken a hip, and you couple that with the end stage of just what uh, Alzheimer's had done to her brain and her body. It was just uh, clear, hey, the end is near, and we decided to forgo, or my family decided to forgo hospice. We were going to bring her back to my house, and she was going to spend her last days or weeks there. Uh, Grandpa got my room, uh, Grandma got Aaron's room, so Aaron and I were relegated to the couches, and I still have so many memories, both good and bad, and um, that kind of went through those last few weeks. She just really held on longer than we thought she would. And uh, it was a Saturday morning. I wake up, you know, on the couch, and Dad comes by and says, hey, your grandmother passed about a half hour ago. And so I go upstairs uh, where they were and kind of, you know, you, just, you, you don't, you don't want to go to the room, but, you know, the family's there. And 
so I, you know, kind of round the corner, and mom and her aunts, they're in there, and they're crying. But also you could sense there was a, there's, there's some relief in the room. And I remember mom asked, hey, do you want to come and see her? And no, I just stayed there in the doorway. But I remember even my aunt calling up my uncle, and before even saying hello, she just said, hey, it's all over. And there was, you know, relief in, uh, in the tears and the grieving. Anyway, so we had the funeral the you know, day or two after that, and it was one of those celebration of life funerals that many of us have come to know or a- attend. And the coolest thing about the whole deal is my grandmother was able to sing at her own funeral. We had had this recording from years prior. She had sung this hymn at a church service you know, back in the early 90s, I think, and we just had this recording. And it was made very clear, we are going to play this at her funeral. So we played this beautiful hymn. It's a hymn called, What a Day That Will Be. And it's about, you know, meeting Jesus when you step into eternity and being with him forever and just enjoying that, that first moment. And so uh, Grandma, and through the recording, she gets, you know, two, three minutes to sing this hymn. And it was so beautiful just to hear the voice as it once was before that a terrible disease had taken root of her life. And the recording comes to an end. And then one of the holiest, maybe the holiest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. My grandfather, this soft-spoken, quiet-strength kind of guy, he stands up in the uh, first row there of the funeral parlor, devout Christian, Jesus follower himself, and he closes his eyes, lifts up his hand, and in this deep, uh, quavering voice, he sings the chorus all by himself to what a day that will be. And I wanted, before we do the communion thing, uh, I wanted to read the, uh, some of the words from that, from that hymn. It just means so much to me and my family. Uh, and it's just an emotional thing every time I read or hear about it. It says, There is coming a day when no heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. In the chorus, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. There will be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness, no pain, no more parting over there. And forever I will be with the one who died for me, what a day, glorious day that will be. There's that line, uh, forever I will be with the one who died for me. Jesus' death and his uh, very quick resurrection, that's the reason we're here in this room. That's the reason that we have hope of holiness. That's the reason that we have hope of eternity, not only with other Jesus followers, but with him as well. And we get to remember this in this weekly cherished moment of shared communion here in this room. Uh, so I want to pray for our time for this, and it, uh, you know these plates will be passed. And uh, think about hope, think about eternity, and think about holiness, and think about uh, just that Jesus has made that possible for every single one in this room, and that it's there as a gift that we uh, can't do a thing as far as good to earn that. And how beautiful that grace is. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for um, texts like this that Paul wrote where we get to take our minds out of this world and get to enjoy the promise and encouragement and the glory of uh, eternity with you. It makes our 
it makes our problems seem pretty small in the context of being with you for all eternity. So help us uh, just take hold of this holy moment, this holy practice where we get to remember the moment where it was all made possible, that uh, any, any feeling of hopelessness uh, was given way to hope. This, uh, this expectation, this desire that uh, we can belong to you and that anything outside of that would seem unattractive, uninteresting. So help us know you, help us remember Jesus in this moment. We give the time to you. In Jesus' name, we all pray together. Amen. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings. Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.